In the first century, the Mediterranean Sea had a crime problem. Specifically, it had a pirate problem. A group of Sicilian pirates captured a 25-year-old Roman nobleman named Julius Caesar. From the start, Caesar simply refused to behave like a captive. When the pirates told him that they had set his ransom at a sum of 20 talents, he laughed at them for not knowing who it was they had captured and suggested that 50 talents would be a more appropriate balance. Caesar made himself at home among the pirates, bossing them around and shushing them when he wanted to sleep. He always addressed them as if he were their commander and they were his subordinates. From time to time, he would threaten to have them all crucified, and they took it as a joke from their overconfident and slightly nutty captive. Well, it wasn't a joke. After 38 days, the ransom was delivered and Caesar went free. Astonishingly, Caesar managed to raise a naval force Despite holding no public office and no military office, he set out in pursuit of the pirates and found them, still camped at the island where he had been held. He brought them back as his prisoners and had them all crucified. Living in the hardships of life can be nerve-wracking. It can be daunting especially when you don't understand or you don't know the outcome of life. You can live life in fear and trepidation, or you can live life like Caesar, saying, hey, you know what? I have no worries. I have no problems. I know that all the wrongs will be righted one day. I have no reason to fear. That is the freedom that we as Christians can live in. Not because we know the outcome, but because we know the God that knows the outcome. A sovereign, holy God that is working for you and for me. But all too often Christians, I believe, and even the church live in that life way of saying, you know what, I don't know what's going to happen. I can't, I'm not sovereign myself, and so I live in this fear of what is going to happen in the future rather than living in light of a sovereign God. Let's be a church that responds knowing that we have a sovereign God. You see, in this passage that we just read, we'll walk through it in just a moment, we saw some of the judgment that a holy and righteous God is going to bring on a world of sin, on a world that is wicked, that has rebelled against God, they have snuffed their nose and turned their nose up at God and said, we don't want you, and they've rebelled. God will and must bring sovereign judgment to this world that we just saw in this passage that we read. Accurate judgment will be placed, and in the end, all wrongs will be right, all sin will be taken care of, and listen, when the dust settles... Look at that. Jesus wins. It's an amazing, amazing truth. I want to give you a scope of revelation. See, this time of tribulation that we're speaking about, this horrible uh, judgment that God is going to bring on the earth, happens right after the rapture. Happens right after what God calls, um, what God is going to do is snatch up the believers, the living and the dead. Once the church is raptured up out of this world, God will bring judgment. This is an unsigned event. Pastor just talked about this the last time he preached. It's unsigned event. That means that there is no warning. It is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. It is going to happen. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen today. It could happen before we're done with this message. But it will happen, and it will happen soon. The rapture of the church. Immediately following the rapture of the church is what we call Daniel's 70th week. That is the final week of God's judgment. It hasn't happened yet, but as soon as that rapture happens, it will begin. In this tribulation, the church will be gone, and God brings judgment. Let me give you the scope of the book of Revelation, if I could, very quickly, in a nutshell. Chapter 1 through 3, we've already gone through. It's the church on earth, the different various churches that he addresses. 
chapter 4 through 5 is the church in heaven. That is the rapture, the church in heaven. And now chapter 6 through 19 is the lion's share of the book of Revelation. That's where we're going to start today. That deals with the entire tribulation. And in the tribulation, you'll see three sets of judgments. Let me, let me spell them out for you. The first one that we're going to look at today, actually, is the seals. The seals. In those seals comes judgment. And at the end of those seals, it's a consecutive judgment of the trumpets. There's a set of judgments called the trumpets. And then, last, there is a set of judgment called the bowls. In these different judgments, they will consecutively take place the seals, trumpets, bulls, and not only will they just be consecutive, they will get worse and worse. It's almost like these are Russian nesting dolls. You know what I'm talking about with that? As you open up the first set of judgments, the seals, you'll find the seals, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. As you open those up, you'll find inside of that the trumpets. And so as you open up that, you'll find one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Inside of that, you'll find next the bulls. And as it continues down the line, it gets worse and worse. This is what God has for this time of judgment. If we continue on, chapter 19 through 20 speaks of Christ coming and establishing his kingdom for a thousand years. And then the last two chapters speaks of the new heaven and the new earth. And at the end, there's a warning about the book of Revelation. That's the overview. And so... In my mind, in my thinking, as Pastor even started this series, I thought, well, what, why, why do I need to pay attention? Why is this important for me? Because Revelation, Revelation, it's the things that are to come, right? The things that haven't happened yet. And for me, as a Christian, I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. And so these things don't really pertain to me. They're not really going to matter for me. But listen, that's the wrong attitude to have. The reason for God giving us Revelation the reason for God telling us what is going to happen and get insight into the future is for two things, to hear and to warn. If you go to the last chapter in Revelation, chapter 22, and you look at verse number 17, here's what it says. It says, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water, living water freely. God says, hey, I'm telling you these things because I want you to hear the warning and come. Not only do you just listen to the warning, but I want you to hear the warning, and then I want you to take the warning that you just heard. And so, friend, I would encourage you, pay attention. Listen to what will happen. This is not a story of what might happen. This is not an option of what could happen. This exact thing will happen one day. And it's going to happen soon, right after the rapture. Where are we at in this series? Well, remember last time Pastor had preached in, in this series, we saw John. John has been caught up in a vision. He is writing down the things that he sees, chapters 1 through 5. He has written all those down already. The last thing that he saw was God on his throne in heaven. God is sitting on his throne. In his hand, he holds a scroll. And John is standing there weeping. Why? Because no one is worthy to come open the scroll. No one can break the seals and open the scroll. And John is weeping, and all of a sudden, in an amazing triumph, somebody steps on the scene. The Lamb of God steps on and says, hey, there is one who is worthy. And he grabs the scroll right out of God's right hand. And as the, the people and beings of heaven gather around and they lift up this amazing worship, the Bible speaks of myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands are worshiping and praising God. Jesus grabs the scroll, now in hand, stands, and begins to open those seals, one by one. And that's the passage that we just read. The first seal, second seal, consecutive, judgment on the earth. And today we're going to walk through those things. Let me ask you, why, why should we be interested in this why should we be excited that god has st stood up and he jesus has taken a scroll and is about to open them and are about to bring judgment on the earth why because listen this marks the the beginning of the end this marks when all sin will be done away with all death will be done away with all pain all hunger all heartbreak 
this is the beginning of the end. And ultimately, what does it culminate with? It culminates with the rightful judge, the rightful king sitting in his place, ruling over. And so listen, Christian, you and I should be excited that this is happening, that this is going to start. And in this chapter, this is where it all begins. Long-awaited judgment. In the end, Jesus wins. Can I tell you today, church, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. That may be a, a truth that you have heard before. God is able and is ruling over everything. But let me ask you this question. You may know that God is sovereign, but are you living like God is sovereign? Does that affect your life? Does that change how you live? Let me pose it to you maybe in a different question. Do you live like God is in control? Or do you live like you are in control? Do you live like God has planned an end to this world and an end to every person's time on this world? Or do you live like time is not a factor? Do you live like God, a sovereign God, has placed hardships in your life to better you? Or do you live like, well, I guess I better just absorb what's coming to me. This is just the hard knocks of life. Listen, you and I should live like God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And we should live like it. Today, this morning, as we walk through this passage together, we're going to look at the entire chapter and we're going to look at three different branches of God's sovereignty. His absolute perfect sovereignty. I hope you understand and get what I'm saying by the end of this message. And I do pray that this does change how you live in light of sovereign God. So let's dive right into it today. I'm looking forward to it. This, this chapter has six seals. You can remember it very easily. Revelation chapter 6 has six seals. There's seven altogether, but there's six found in this chapter. We're going to walk through each one of them. Take a look at what type of judgments are coming to the earth and how that should affect how we live. So let's look at it together. The first thing I want to look at is in God's sovereign mercy, there is no end. In God's sovereign mercy, there is no end. Let's look at the first seal together. Look in verse number one with me in chapter six. It says, now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. This is John and he's observing the seals being opened and one of the four creatures that are around the throne says, hey, come and see. And here is what Paul, or here's what John sees. It says, and I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Well, who is this? Somebody riding in on a white horse with a weapon in hand, with a crown on his head, conquering? Of course, this is none other than not Jesus. You see, this is exactly what the devil does. The devil is a great counterfeiter. He deceives and decepts. That is the first thing he ever did when he, when he activated his plan of sin on the earth is he provided doubt and deception. And all he is is the great counterfeiter. And he uses this rider on the white horse to act just like Christ. But it's not Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ will come on a white horse. Later in Revelation, we're going to see that. But when Jesus comes on a white horse, he does not have a weapon in hand. His weapon is his word. The Bible says that it comes out of his mouth like a sword. His word is his weapon. And his, he comes on a white horse. His word is his weapon. And he comes with a crown, not just one, but he comes with many crowns. You see, this rider right here, if you look at the word, the crown, this is a, a victor's crown. He is going to conquer some, and he will get a crown. This is more of a wreath that he is placed on his head. But Jesus, when he comes, will have many crowns, and it will not just be a wreath, it will be the royal crown, it will be the diadem. That is what Jesus will come with. And Jesus will not come conquering, Jesus will come and conquer. This is the great counterfeit, the first seal. 
And when he comes, he has a sword in his hand. You see that at the end of the verse, or he comes in conquering. And when he comes in conquering, this is what he does. He provides the assumption of peace, but will break it. He says, I come and I want to bring everybody together. I want to have unity. But behind the scenes, he's conquering and conquering and conquering. See, this is not, this is not a holy person that comes to, to lift up people, to, to reach down and lift up the lowly. No, this is a man that comes in as a rider on the white horse looking to conquer, literally just for conquering's sake. This is not Jesus Christ. But it is the first seal. And this is what the first seal will will give a man perception of peace, backdoor conquering. This is an antichrist. But I want you to see something in this verse. You say, Brother Levi, where's, where's the mercy that you're talking about? The mercy where there is no end. Where's the mercy in this? Well, can I tell you this? The Bible speaks of God's mercy, and it gives very specific details about it. It says that his mercy will last forever. It says that his mercy will extend from generation to generation, and that means even in the tribulation. So where do we see God's mercy in this? Where do we see when a man comes conquering, looking like Jesus, promising peace, and then breaking it? Where's the mercy? I want you to see this in verse number two. It says this. It says, and I looked, and behold, the white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. He did not have this crown of his own power and authority. A crown represents authority and it represents power, but it was not his. It was given to him. And in God's mercy, these are his allowances on this earth. Let me ask you this. Is God allowing something in your life right now? Maybe something you don't want. Maybe something you'd rather push away. But God allows things to happen because it reveals his mercy. In this passage right here, God allows this man to be given a crown. Ultimately, he will be conquering. It says it goes out to conquer, but in the end, he never ends up conquering. Conquering and to conquer, but he never conquers the whole world. Like, there's mercy, even in judgment. I want you to see the second seal as we continue to move on. The second seal, verse number three says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. As you see, the first rider was on a white horse. This second rider is on a red horse, appropriate with what's coming alongside of him. Destruction, killing, blood. This rider of the red horse comes, and in his hand he holds a sword. And I want you to see yet again what was given to him. It says, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. Can I remind you of something? God is the author of peace. You and I may try to fabricate peace and fabricate happiness and try, try to make it and bolster it up and say, you know what, this is what I, my, my life is going to be happy. I'm going to have this peace. But peace ultimately comes from God. And God looks at this rider of the red horse and he gives allowance for him to take peace. There is peace on the earth right now in some fashion, in some way. Do you realize that? There's countries that have peace treaties. We, we can gather in this room and not be at each other's throats. At least I'm not seeing that right now. Maybe in your mind you're thinking, oh, I don't like that person over there. That, no, that's not how it should be. Not at all. There's peace here. But when this writer comes, he's going to take peace. And what happens when he takes peace? People kill one another. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. You see, when he is granted this ability to take peace he's showing that there is somebody greater than him that holds peace you say well what do you mean what do you mean well this is the same idea as authority right you don't understand authority and how it trickles from the top down that's the only way it can go it cannot go from the bottom up it can only come from the top down we see this very simply let me say this right there's the sheriff and then there's deputies 
Well, do deputies have power in themselves, really, to, to, to fulfill their duties? No, because uh, of themselves, they're just a person. They're just a citizen like you and me. But yet when the sheriff comes in town, he says, ah, I deputize this person. My authority is now transferred, and he is an extension of me. That's exactly how this works. God is the holder of peace, and he gives this authority out to people. I remember as a young kid, I, uh, I had a lot of brothers and uh, some sisters. I'm the baby of six. And so as the baby of six, I would often be the one that would be uh, bossed around, told what to do. Hey, I don't want to do this. You go do this. And the next oldest would be like, I don't want to do this. You go do this. And so as it trickled down to me, you know what? I got pretty good attitude at saying, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. You go do it. And I could do that until my brother comes in and says, hey, dad said, take out the trash. Oh, well, now no longer am I fighting with my brother. I have had the authority tell me what to do. The authority that's been transferred to him from my dad now says, hey, Levi, dad said, take out the trash. This authority, remember, can only come from the top down. And that right there should give you comfort. Saying, you know what? Anything that happens to me, anything that's allowed, it's not just happenstance. It's not just because the devil is ruling and the, the world is winning. It's not happening because of that, but it's happening because of God allowances. What's being allowed in your life right now? Can you rest assured that, hey, I may not like this, I may not want this, but I know that God is allowing it. And in his mercy, I'll see him provide. This is the allowance given. And when he comes and he takes peace, do you realize did you see in these verses that he never does any killing? Did you see that? He comes on the red horse and he rides into town and all he does is just, just take peace. And as soon as that peace is taken away, people are at each other's throats. They're killing one another. They're back and forth bickering, fighting, leading into death and, and hatred and, and frustration. Why? All because of this peace that's taken. You know what this reveals? It reveals the self defeating character of sin. When sin has the opportunity to reign, it implodes. It self-destructs. And maybe right now you have found some liberty in your sin. And maybe right now you've found some freedom in allowing sin to take place and say, you know what, I, I kind of, I have this area in my life where no one really sees, no one tells me what to do, and, and no one can find out. And so I'm going to let sin kind of play out a little bit. And you start to enjoy it. Listen, the Bible says sin is enjoyable for a season. But as sin starts to grow and as sin starts to compound, what sin does is in the end, what does sin bring forth? Ultimately, it brings forth death. Maybe in your life, sin has started to have some freedom. Nobody knows and nobody sees. But as sin grows and as sin gets that freedom, ultimately, it will self-destruct. It promises enjoyment, but it brings forth death. That is the second horse, the red horse. Let's look at the next one as we continue on here this morning. Verse number five, it says, And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. That's interesting. Well, the first rider came in with a bow. The second rider came in uh, with a sword. What, what, what is this? I don't understand. Well, here's what happens. This next rider comes in with a scale in his hands. Now, when I think of a scale, you know who I think of? Lady Justice with the blindfold and holding the scales, trying to represent that the scales is a fair way of market. As you come and you pay for something, I'll, we put the one side on the scale, the purchase, and then your, your payment on the other side, and as they weigh out, then that is fair and that is even. But with an unjust, with a false scale, it turns. You see, what happens when there is a, an unjust and false scale, this, this third horse comes and affects and breaks down, really cripples and crumbles the economy. That's what the next judgment is. 
As he comes in, the economy looks as if things are fair, if things are working out, but all of a sudden, slowly there's a decline, and the economy declines, and all of a sudden, the resources decline, and we find ourselves in this place, and as John is watching this, he sees the scales, and he's watching among, and all of a sudden, there's a voice. Did you hear it? voice comes out from among the four beasts and says this. Read it with me. It says this. It says, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius. Economic crumble. You say, well, what's, what's a quart of wheat and what's a denarius? Well, let's put it into simple terms. A quart of wheat was a day's ration of food. Same thing as three quarts of barley. A day's ration of food. And so that's what's represented. A day's ration of food. What's the cost of that? It's a denarius. Well, okay, what's a denarius? It is one day's wage. So can you see it? The decline of the economy, the crumbling all around us, it's not just in where we live. This is the world. Everyone is working all day long just for food. Listen, this is not living paycheck to paycheck. Some of us do that in here, and that happens, and God uses and provides in his certain ways, but that's not what this is. This is much, much worse. This is working every single day not to pay your bills and to have your car payment and to have your air. That's not what this is. This is working all day just for food. The very sustenance that we need is all we can afford. He brings this horrible economy collapse, this, this idea of just to survive. The last part of this verse, you say, okay, so there's the denarius, and it says, do not harm the oil and the wine. That's, this is what that is. That is the indulgence, the, the high living of life. You say, okay, so everyone in the world will be, will be struggling and trying to survive. Yes, but there will, be, there will be luxuries around. There will be. It says, do not harm the oil and the wine. The oil and the wine are the luxuries of life. But listen, you will be so focused on just trying to survive, you won't even think about the luxuries of life. It's going to be a horrible time of judgment, just trying to find food to survive. This is what the black horse brings, a major lack, but not a total loss. As we continue on, as we move along this, this morning, we've looked at three seals. Let's look at the fourth seal. It says, and when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice from the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him, and power was given him to over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger, with death and by the beasts of the field. Here's the fourth the fourth horse, he has given power over one-fourth of the earth to kill. He comes on a pale horse and has the appropriate horses before with their color. You say, what is the significance of the pale horse? Well, listen, pale horse, let me give you the picture of what this pale horse looks like. It is not, it's not just a cream-colored horse. Listen, it is more like a light, greenish hue. So what, what does that mean? Well, as you read commentaries, they liken this color to the color of death. The color, unfortunately, of a decaying corpse. That's what this color of the horse is. Because that's exactly what's going to come. When they come, yet again you see God's mercy. Only allowing one-fourth of the earth to be affected by this. And when he comes, he comes with death and Hades. You see this correlated and linked together in other parts of the scripture, death and hell, death and the grave, the underworld, the, the realm of the dead come together. And as they, they're given this power over a quarter of the earth, what do they do with power? What do they do with it? They kill. And they don't just kill. They kill in gruesome, horrific ways. This is reality. This will happen. The Bible says that they kill with the sword. That's a very up-close, impersonal, passionate killing. It says that they kill with hunger. That is a cruel, elongated, horrible death. It says that they kill with death. This refers to the actual body. So probably, 
something along the lines of disease, infection, a plague. And then it says, this is the reality, it says it kills with beasts. Death and hell are given power over a quarter of the earth, and they kill with beasts. You say, what, what do you mean by that? Well, can you imagine? The economy has gone down, the food has gone down, so now all of a sudden, even the beasts and the nature are looking for food, and they come to civilization. Horrible, horrible sight. As you can imagine, the beasts coming into the cities and into the, to, into the houses and neighborhoods, and all of a sudden, you've you got to be careful of going outside because they're, they're ravaging people and dogs and predators and, and tigers, bears even, coming in and killing people. And this is what death and hell do with the power they're given over one quarter of the earth. You say, well, where's the mercy in that? It's judgment, but only one quarter of the earth. Three-quarters of the earth, God says, I'm going to have mercy. And listen, even in this horrible time of judgment, God gives mercy. I want you to see that in his mercy, there is no end. With the white horse, he came conquering, but never fully conquered. With the red horse, he came and took peace, but he did not take hope. With the black horse, he caused major lack, but it was not a total loss. With the pale horse, one quarter of the earth died but not all of the earth. Listen, even in judgment, God says, my mercy is everlasting. The emperor Napoleon had a rule that if any soldier who was absent without leave would be shot, this was without exception, until a soldier who happened to be 17 years old, the son of Napoleon's cook, he ran away, left his post. Well, he was captured, and his mother asked Napoleon for mercy. She said, he said, woman, your son does not deserve mercy. And she replied, yes, of course, you're right. He doesn't deserve mercy. If he deserved it, it would no longer be mercy. And Napoleon responded, then I will have mercy and spare your son. You see, God must bring judgment on this world, but he will extend mercy. Even though we don't deserve it, even though we shouldn't get it, his mercy extends for every generation. Listen, friend, maybe you, maybe you have found yourself in a place where you, you've rejected God, you've rejected what he wants, and you have pushed against him, but in his mercy, he's reaching out yet again. In his mercy, he's reaching out and saying, hey, I still want you. Hey, I still want to accept you. Hey, I still want you to be a part of my family. He's giving mercy to you even now, even now. Accept that mercy. Look at number two as we move along quickly. Number one, in God's sovereign mercy, there's no end. But look at number two. In God's sovereign timing, there is planned rest. We have gone through four seals so far. Now we jump into the fifth seal. Here's what the Bible says. Look at verse number nine. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Very quickly, this is what this means. As John is writing, he now gets transported to heaven where there's the altar and the people that have died, maybe during this time, as martyrs. They have held up the testimony of Christ. They have stood firm. They have not wavered. And as they did so, they were killed for the testimony that they held. Where their souls are gathered underneath the altar, this is a picture of safety, a picture of acceptance. And as God's, these souls are speaking to God, look at what this says. It says this, verse number 10, and they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? This was their cry. How long, God? God, we know you're good, we know you're righteous, we know you're going to avenge, but how long? We've been waiting, we've been watching the wickedness of the world, we've been watching it unfold, and they're not turning, they're still rebelling, so God, we know you're going to bring that swift judgment, we know in the end all wrongs are going to be right, and how long? Are you asking that this morning? I have. God, I just, I don't understand, I'm in this tough, this tough situation, the bill, the relationship. The time, the money, the news from the doctor. How long? Maybe you're sitting here today and have a wayward child and you're asking God, how long? 
How long until they come back? How long until I get healed? How long until this is taken care of? How long until this pressure is off me? God, how long? Well, let's look at his answer. Let's look at his answer to these souls that have been martyred for his cause. Here's what he says. Verse number 11. Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. What was his response? He didn't answer. He didn't tell them how long. He didn't lay out his timeline. He didn't give them his game plan. He said, wait. Just wait. He says, I have something going on. Listen, my time is sovereign. I'm in control of this time. And what I have planned for you is to rest. In God's sovereign timing, there's planned rest. And so rather than getting an answer from him, he reassures them that, hey, I'm in control. You see what it says here? It says that he gave them white robes. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of his justification, saying, hey, you were once sinners, but I have made you clean. I have, I have taken the clothes that you were wearing. I've taken your filthy rags. I've thrown them off, and I've given you a white robe. I justify you. Listen, I accept you. You're my own. And as he gives them this reassurance that he accepts them, he reassures them of himself. Hey, I'm in control. Hey, my timing is perfect. My plan is still in play. And although I'm not going to tell you when, you've asked me how long, I'm not going to explain to you, but I will tell you this. Rest a little while. I'm still in control. See, Christian, you and I cannot just only wonder, hey, God, when is this going to happen? But we can rest in God. And listen, you can rest on God. God is your reassurance. God is your calm. God says, in my timing, there is planned rest. There is planned rest. The Bible speaks about rest. A famous verse. But sometimes we, we like to read into those verses a little bit. And so if you were to read Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, sometimes we read it like this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you an immediate response. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find answers for your soul. That's what we want, right? We want God to jump right on it. God, I'm ready for you to do something. Do it now. He says, wait. God, I don't understand what's going on. How long until I want answers? He says, no, my timing. You rest. The psalmist understood this. That, hey, God's timing is perfect. I may not get an answer, but my job, my responsibility is to rest and trust him. Here's what the psalmist says. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. Be still and know that I am God. Listen, God has a sovereign timing. And in his timing, his plan for you is to rest. For these souls, his plan was there will be more martyrs. More of your brethren will die just like you did. And that's not completed yet. So you rest. Know that I love you. Know that you're accepted. Here's the white robe. Know that, that I am me. And you are you, so just wait. Wisdom once said, it may be difficult to wait on the Lord, but it is worse to wish that you had. Don't push God. Rest in his timing. Let God be God. Look, lastly, as we conclude here this morning, number one, mercy, there is no end. Number two, timing has planned rest, but in God's sovereignty, number three, in God's sovereign wrath, there is no hiding. Look at the last part of this chapter as we read the sixth seal. 
It says, I looked and he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by the mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Listen, here's what happens with the sixth seal when it is open. It's not just an attack on, on the people. Now it is an attack on the cosmos, on the earth, on the atmosphere. And all of a sudden we see the sun goes dark. Earth starts to quake. The moon turns red like blood. And all of a sudden, stars, comets, asteroids start falling. And the, the earth is open. The sky is opened up. And these comets are allowed to come in and strike the earth. It's going to be a horrible time. See what it says? It says that the, the mountains are moved out of its place and the islands are moved out of its place. You know what those two things are? Those are the most stable things for those for those aspects. What's the most stable thing on earth? It's a mountain. It's a mountain. What's the most stable thing in the sea? Well, it's an island. It doesn't move. And the Bible says that when God comes and he brings this sixth seal and it's open, the mountains, the most stable thing will move. The islands will move. Everything will be thrown into chaos. You know what this is going to cause? It's going to cause the men of the earth to fear and tremble. This will cause a, listen to this, it will cause a equalizing of men. Look at it with me in the Bible. Here's what it says, verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, and the mighty men, those, these are all the, the high, important people of the world. Kings, commanders, rich men. These are all people of importance. But then also look at who it throws into this group. Who else does it throw into this group? It throws into this group every slave and every free man. This creates a, a level playing field. Then now when the earth is affected, your status, your money, your pedigree, who you are, you, you as a person, your connections, doesn't matter. Everyone becomes on the same playing field when this starts to happen. The sixth field brings with this, this along. And as these men start to realize, hey, hey, my money is not going to help me here. My connections don't help me here. All of a sudden they gather together in one group as men. And what do they do? Here's what they do. It says, they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the land. This is what they do. They, they find themselves all in the same playing field that they have no upper hand anymore. And now they say, we, we've got to get out of this. And so they run to the mountains, which ironically is still affected by this. The mountain is shaking. They run to the mountains and, and they go inside and they start to speak to the rocks. Does anybody else think that's weird? You know what this is? This is an example of the terror in their hearts. That they would personify a mountain and a rock to say, hey, listen to me. I, need, I have a request of you. Would you please grant my request? And what the request? Would you please fall on us? Would you kill us? Because we want to hide from the wrath of God. And listen, I'll tell you this today. In God's sovereign wrath, there is no hiding. They said so we'd rather commit suicide than submit to a holy God. We'd rather run to the mountains and try to kill ourselves than humble ourselves. They said, God, no, we are wrong and you are right. That's where they find themselves today, in this passage. That's where they're at. But it doesn't end there. There's one more verse. As these men are speaking to these rocks, crying out, look at what they say in this last verse. They said, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, this was a rhetorical question, so they thought. The obvious answer, when the earth is moving and everything's happening, these, these judgments are coming. Listen, more judgments are to come. It's going to get a lot worse. But as these judgments are coming, they're saying, there's no way. There's no way. There's nobody who can stand. What's the answer to who can stand? Nobody. But that's not true. There are people that can stand. We're going to see that in the next chapter. Pastor's going to come, and as we look at the next chapter, there's a whole host of people that stand. Who is it? It's God's people. God's people can stand. 
Who can stand when the white horse comes? God's people. Who can stand when the economy breaks? God's people. Who can stand when peace is taken? God's people. Who can stand when the pale horse and death come? God's people. Who can stand? The answer is God's people. The obvious answer is if you're not one of God's people, you cannot stand. That's the question posed today, I think. Are you one of God's people? Who will stand? God's people will stand. But for these stubborn, rebellious people, there was no escape. This could be you today. Stubborn, rejecting, pushing away. The gospel has been offered. And you say no. Well, listen, if you say no to the gospel, the end of your story will be the same as theirs. There is no escape. There is no hiding. But today... There is an offer. Today, God is handing out, or handing out the gift of salvation to anyone who wants it. It's free. All you have to do is accept it. A free gift. And God brings you into his family. And you become one of God's people. And you can stand. In 1830, a man named George Wilson had been sentenced to hang for killing a guard while robbing a federal payroll on a train. The public attitude against capital punishment led to an eventual pardon by President Andrew Jackson. Wilson refused the pardon, stating he would rather die. So John Marshall, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, stood up and declared this. He said, a pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of it. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. So George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. Therefore, George Wilson must die. Friend, can I tell you this? That there is a pardon being offered to every single person today. Some of us have accepted it, but maybe you haven't. The pardon is this. Your crime is a sin against the holy God. Your punishment is eternal damnation in a place without Jesus Christ called hell. What's the pardon? That Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid for those sins, is freely giving you a gift called salvation where it washes all of your sin away. It binds you into relationship with Jesus Christ and you can know that forever you will never leave Jesus and he will never leave you. Hell will no longer be your home. Heaven will be your home for all of eternity and you will have a sweet relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the pardon being offered. But can you believe this? Some people reject that. Say, no, I'll take care of my sin, my own time, my own dime, my own way. And your conclusion of your story will be like these people. There is no hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. And so as we look at the message today, I want you to see this. Like God is sovereign in mercy, like God is sovereign in time, like God is sovereign in wrath. There will be a judgment, but you don't have to be a part of it. You can accept that gift today. I remember uh, my dad always losing his keys or losing his wallet or losing something. And nowadays I have a little tile on my key that beeps when I lose it. I say, oh, no, pull up my phone and beep it and make it, make it sound, and I go find it. I have even one in my wallet as well. And I remember that my dad told me one day, um, he had lost his wallet, and so the family gets together, and we all, we all start searching, and it was, and it was a big endeavor. It was almost the whole day. We searched every car. We searched every room. We searched every, every part of the house. We looked at the laundry. We looked over here, and that. Every place we looked, we couldn't find it, and when my dad goes upstairs in the pants that he had on the day before, he thought he had checked. He picks him up, pats him down, doesn't feel it. At the end of the day, he goes back and says, I'm just going to check one more time. And he reaches in, and there's his wallet. He was so excited. He said, all right, the whole family's going to go out to eat. We're going to go get out back. And so it was an awesome time. Dad found the wallet. And so we would joke from now on. We would say, hey, Dad, where's your wallet? We kind of want to go to Outback. And <laughs> we would do that sometimes. But my dad told me, he says, you know what? No longer do I ever lay my wallet down. When I'm at like a register, 
If I have to pull out my credit card, I pull it out, I hold on to it, I use my credit card, and I stick it right back, and I never lay it on the counter. And since he told me that, that changed how I do things. You can ask my wife. When I pull out my, my wallet, I pull out the credit card, I use it, and I stick it back in. I don't lay it down. A simple story, a simple advice from my dad to do that with my wallet has changed how I live. And can I tell you this? God has given us this passage to change how you live. He showed us his sovereignty. And he wants you to live like he is sovereign. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. We'll have a time here of invitation. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask you a few questions. Have you been, have you been living like God is not sovereign? Have you been living saying, what about me? What about mercy for me? Remember, God is sovereign in mercy. There is no end. Maybe you're somebody in here today that's been living a life that says, you know what? God's timing is just not right. Remember, God's timing is perfect. And it's our job to rest in him. Or maybe this morning you could be one that realizes there's a sovereign wrath that's coming. You say, you know what? I don't want to experience that wrath. I want to have the salvation that Jesus offers. If that's you today, you can accept that where you're at. In your seat, you can accept that. That's a very simple recognition that I'm a sinner. God, I deserve the place called hell. But God, I want that gift of salvation. Saying, God, I trust in you and what you did, and I accept that for myself. That's as easy as it is. Friend, you can do that today. Let's all stand. And maybe you need to come to this altar. Maybe God spoke to you. and You've not been living like God is sovereign. And you just need to say, God, I've been, I've been living wrong. Thank you for this passage, and I need to start living like you are sovereign. With every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe there's somebody today that wants to accept that gift of salvation. I can lead you in a prayer. My words don't save you. The prayer does not save you. It's your heart that believes. But I can lead you in a model prayer. Say something like this. Dear God, I realize that I am a sinner. I realize that I deserve hell. But I know that you paid the price for me with your son. God, thank you for Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, and rising again the third day. I accept your righteous payment for my sins. I believe in you. Help me not to be ashamed. If that was you today, if you just prayed that prayer, listen, I would love to pray for you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to ask you to come up here. All I want you to do is if you would please just raise your hand, I would love to see you and pray for you. If there's anybody in here today that did that, that just prayed that prayer, would you raise your hand and say, you know what, I just accepted that gift of salvation. I want God to know that I want to be one of his people. Amen. We're going to have a song here of invitation. You take time. You pray. You allow God to speak to you.